Hello, everyone. Um, admittedly, I'm a little nervous. I haven't actually done a proper rumination with the webcam going and everything uh, since January. Um, so I guess we'll see how this goes. Hopefully uh, this setup is good and everything's good. I still got a few things to work out uh, on the technical side of things. Not that any of you care about that. I just kind of mention it here. So, as usual with this particular series, I'm going to start with a warning about spoilers. The way this works within the Kingdom Hearts series is uh, people are allowed to discuss or comment or otherwise spoilers with regards to as far as we've gotten in the series, a.k.a. now that we're discussing uh, Chain of Memories and Re-Chain of Memories, you can talk about that and Kingdom Hearts 1 spoilers freely, but not past this point, and I myself will be doing the same. Uh, also, the first chunk of this video will be talking about things that don't involve spoilers, gameplay and whatnot, and then, you know, and maybe some backstory about the game, and then afterwards I'll start talking without regard toward spoilers. So, let's get right to it. very first thing I want to get out of the way with regards to Chain of Memories is uh, the fact that I will primarily be looking at re-Chain of Memories, the PS2 remake. Two big reasons for that. Number one, it's a really well done remake, all things considered. Uh, it is, uh, I'd say, a proper remake, which is weird in its own right, but it was done very well and it, it had a lot of benefits, which I'll talk about more later. Second reason, I haven't actually played the GBA version since it came out and uh, don't actually own a copy anymore. And on top of that, I imagine most people who are going to go through the Kingdom Hearts series aren't going to be playing the GBA version, they're going to be playing the PS2 version. Especially since the PS2 version is much easier to get a hold of, so... Just wanted to get that out of there. I am going to mention the GBA version uh, with, with when it's relevant, but in general, just assume that everything I'm talking about is talking about the PS2 version, Recon. Now the next thing I want to get out of the way pretty much right off the bat is negatives about this game. Anybody who's been following me or heard me talk about the Kingdom Hearts series at all, uh, either on the stream or here on the videos, probably knows that I have a generally negative opinion, or at least a non-glowing opinion, about Recom. And I want to talk about why right off the bat. Get that over with, get that talked about, and try and discuss it, discuss it as neutrally as I can and try and really dissect why it is I feel that way rather than just being like, oh, it's awful. Um, and then, you know, talk about everything else thereafter. So I'm going to go on a bit of a segue here first. In my uh, own personal definitions, there's a difference between cheating and cheating, okay? Yeah, I know. Just bear with me. Cheating is technically defined as anything that is not def uh, intended to be allowed within the game proper. That would include uh, any hacks uh, with a game genie or a game shark or whatever that might you might do. It would include anything that you do that glitches out the game or any special codes you can punch in that were not allowed to be, you know, were not intended to be in the game proper. You know, stuff like that, right? That is cheating. As uh, Just to pause for a moment, most people probably know that I am generally not in favor so much as much more lenient towards cheating than the other category, especially because, as I've said many times before, uh, in RPGs especially, most RPGs don't have New Game Plus. And you can use cheating, in some cases, to artificially emulate a New Game Plus and actually you know, make that happen. There's other things you can do too, but whatever. Let's go over here to cheating, okay? Now, I don't like cheating. But I'm, I'm still not going to speak negatively of it. I, so I, I, what I mean by I don't like it is I don't find it enjoyable. I don't find it fun. I don't like doing it. The reason why is cheating is best defined as no really cheating. Um, to use an RPG example again, let's say you're playing Final Fantasy VI and you put in a level 99 code and go and just demolish everything in your path instantly and without effort. Uh, let's say you're playing 
Super Mario Brothers, and you put in a code that means you always have Starman on, you know, something like that. That's cheating. Now, as I said, I don't like cheating. I don't like uh, that kind of thing. I don't enjoy it. And that's really the thing. This is not, you know, me trying to take some moral high ground or be elitist or whatever. This is just my statement that I don't enjoy that sort of thing, like, 99% of the time. Uh, that being said, I do want to put a quick uh, side note here. I do understand several people do have legitimate reasons to cheat, uh, because, for example, let's say that I happen to really like the story of Warcraft, but I am not good at RTSs, and I don't want to be good at those kind of games. I don't like uh, real-time strategy games in general. So rather than you know go without or try and force myself through something I don't enjoy, I cheat and turn on a code that I only know exists because of Gary. Uh, where, like, I, you one-shot everything because all your damage is insane and all your units are invincible and stuff like that, and then go through the game to enjoy the story, right? Ah, uh, pardon me. Ah, uh, I understand that, and that's a valid reason to cheat. But my point I'm trying to get across here is that I don't like that because it's not fun for me. It's, it's, it's like cheating at solitaire when you're playing by yourself, you know? What's the point of that, right? That being said, my whole reason for doing this little segue is because I cheated at Kingdom Hearts Recom. Now, I did poke at it legitimately uh, for a little bit. I apologize. I need to blow my nose. Hang on just a second. There's like a mute button, I think. Apologies. That kind of snuck up on me there. Yeah. There's a... there's Okay, I tried playing uh, Recom without cheats. I got nowhere, basically. Uh, you know, I, I was still in the first area. Well, actually, I got to the second area. And I was like, okay, I'm not doing this anymore. And I gave myself 99 of every card, right? Now, if you know me, <laughs> and given what I just said, you're probably thinking, well, why? The, the best reason I could possibly explain the why with this particular regard is because the gameplay was so negative for me that I just could not bring myself to keep going through it. Like I was just talking about with Gary's example, you know, he hated real-time strategy games and didn't want to try to get good at it, so he just punched in ultra cheats so he could go and enjoy the story. That's basically the same boat I was in. But one question I've been asked often is why? What is it exactly about Recom's combat and system that I didn't like? And it's not, I say combat, but that's being disingenuous. Gameplay is actually more accurate here. Because it's not just the combat, although the combat has its own problems. But we're going to talk about combat first and the the other problem second. Like I said, two negative things about this game. <sighs> so, as I mentioned back in Kingdom Hearts 1, Kingdom Hearts is the furthest uh, development of what I call the Secretive Mana Engine, which actually started with Final Fantasy Adventure, which is second it to 1. This was a good thing, in my opinion, and it worked very well, and it has worked very well throughout the series. Good on them. One thing that kind of carried over to the Kingdom Hearts series from their biggest franchise, Final Fantasy, was the idea that they have to change things up every time. I actually have talked about this back in my Final Fantasy videos, uh, with how there's nothing necessarily wrong with trying to change up things every single time, but the simple problem with that is the fact that once it becomes the norm, once you have to change, once it is an obligation to change something every time, you stop being as creative with it and you just kind of try to come up with something new so that it's something new. And my opinion is that that is an overall negative thing. So it is my opinion that Kingdom Hearts uh, 
that it is also basically a negative thing in Kingdom Hearts is what I'm getting at here. Because each Kingdom Hearts game, they've tried to, uh, excuse me, change up the formula every single game, just a little bit often. Uh, now, in some cases, this works. But then we have, there's two really big exceptions that I think did not work out. Uh, one of those is this game, and one of them is 358 over two days, which I'm not going to really talk about here at all. Even though it's directly related. I apologize. I don't know what my nose is doing today. Hang on. I do apologize. Pardon me. So, that being said, they... Okay. <laughs> this is going to take a little bit to explain, so forgive me. But anybody who's played COM or ReCom knows that the game is basically centered around cards, okay? Let's do a little bit of a segue first. Let's imagine I have a game centered around cards, Okay. <laughs> I don't know if you can actually see that, I'm not looking at the camera right now, but let's just say that this is a big mechanic. Now, here's an interesting concept, uh, just to segue again, that's right, this is a segue from a segue. Most video games do not bother to have gameplay mechanics be a thing in lore. Usually when it is a thing in lore, that is an exception. And if you're saying, well, Arshade Gaia, can you give me an example? Yes, I can. In Final Fantasy VII, Materia is an object that exists as it functions in the game in lore as well. Within the, within the confines of the setting, you can still take materia, equip it, and utilize it in order to learn the power of the ancients and whatnot, right? Makes sense. Uh, Magicite is another excellent example of this from Final Fantasy VI. That is a gameplay mechanic and a story mechanic at the same time, right? Now let's look at, oh, I don't know, uh, say... Limit breaks in FF8. We'll keep the FF thing going. Um, I actually had a better example I can't remember right now, so forgive me, but we'll stick with limit breaks, because this is an excellent way to put up, get across the point I'm trying to make. Limit breaks in FF8 are just things that purely exist in gameplay. They have absolutely no function whatsoever in terms of lore. However, in FF8 as well, there are there is a gameplay, uh, there's a function of the gameplay that does exist in lore, and that would be junctions and the whole uh, guardian force thing. So my point I'm trying to get across here is, for the most part, if there is something that is gameplay and lore connected, it is the exception, and everything else is just, it's gameplay. Uh, so you follow, a better example would be to go to something like Mario Brothers. Yes, I know that technically there was originally an explanation for what those power-ups were. I also know that that explanation has been tossed out the window ever since Mario Brothers 1. So let's not go into that point I'm getting across here is those power-ups don't exist in lore, they exist in, in gameplay, depending on the game. Yes, I know this could be debated, just <laughs> bear with me, okay? <laughs> so, the card system was something that was a lore mechanic of Recom. The way that the cards worked, and the way that the Oblivion Castle was morphic, and the way that everything could change, and, and was dependent upon your memories, and what, and what it is you had, and how you could extract uh, you know, these cards from someone in order to edit things and change things. All of that is a function of lore. In fact, it is a very important function of lore. I'm not going to talk about that yet, because we're not in the spoiler section yet. But you get the point. All of that was a deeply involved and connected part of the story. That exists in character, in setting. That being said, that's the cards that are used to edit and change the rooms and, uh, you know, that are extracted from memories or whatnot. Now, if you know anything about this game, you already know what I'm about to say. 
that's like this 5% of the rest of the gameplay here. Now, all the rest of this gameplay also has to do with cards, but it has nothing to do with the story. When you're actually in the combat playing sword cards against the enemy or, you know, whatever, fire cards or cure cards or potion cards, whatever, in order to do, do actions and gameplay, that's not a function of the lore. And we know this for a fact because when they actually have cutscenes in this game, both in the original and in the PS2 remake, they definitively show that these people are not playing cards. Or, uh, playing. I, I don't mean like playing. I mean like playing a card or utilizing a card in order to do an attack. They just do it. Uh, I, I can't give you examples because I'm not in the spoiler section, but you get the point. It is definitively shown that the combat element of the cards is purely a gameplay mechanic, right? And... It is shown that the cards you have to collect in order to advance is also purely a gameplay mechanic rather than a lore mechanic. Now that's fine. That's not actually my complaint. I just wanted to get this point across to try and explain the overall problem here. Okay, I'm still getting to it. Forgive me for building up to this, but I really want to explain my problem with this combat and why this game just destroyed me. And, and it, it made my friend Pax stop playing the Kingdom Hearts series. That's not a joke. Uh, he still has not picked up... Uh, well, he got like a few hours into Kingdom Hearts 2, but then he just put it down, because Recom killed his interest in the series. And no, I'm not just using his opinion. I basically am in agreement with him. Uh, actually, I'm probably a lot more uh, lenient on the game than he is. <laughs> so, here's the catch. They went into this with this whole card mechanic thing for lore reasons. That was the original reason. Remember I talked about this back in Kingdom Hearts 1. After 1, they wrote the entire rest of the story. You know, here's 1, and then here's the whole story. And they wrote all of this after 1 was a success. They, they laid down at the very least the framework and the guidelines for where all the rest of the games were going without the franchise, because they assumed the franchise was going somewhere, and they were right. So the card thing was something that was early on in that, and ha and like I said, it has to do with several important plot points within Kingdom, Heart, uh, Kingdom Hearts in general, let alone Recom. That being said, the, I the idea and the decision to make gameplay mechanics function off of the cards, because the cards are sort of a theme, or there's, there's, there's a certain relevance or importance to them to the story, makes perfect sense to me, and I'm totally okay with that. I really am. There's there's no objection within me whatsoever about this fact, okay? That's not my problem. <laughs> if anything, and this is going to sound very strange, I'm sure, I think the gameplay would have been a lot less uh, aggravating with regards to the combat specifically if it had been more cards and less Kingdom Hearts. Or, admittedly, more Kingdom Hearts and less cards. But let's just assume we wanted cards in here for whatever reason. This halfway middle hybrid system we've got is is in in summary my biggest problem with this. Now let me let me add one other thing here. This is uh, a matter of opinion. I was never able to verify this. The facts, uh, in my opinion, do support this, but this is purely speculation. I was not able to verify this fact. But I get the very strong feeling, especially based on the GBA version, by the way, uh, which was a lot more card and a lot less combat. That when they were making this game and especially the remake, someone. In, involved, you know, you, you hear the term executive meddling. The problem is executive can be just about anyone when it comes down to it in context. So somebody involved with the process said, well, where's our Secret of Mana style combat? Or, you know, whatever they call it. You know, where's our action uh, action RPG element there? You have two characters playing cards against each other. Well, yeah. You see, the cards have to do with the setting and the story and the spoiler, 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 you know. And they're like, well, yeah, but we need to have this action mode. That's what Kingdom Hearts is based off of. Well, we wanted to try something different with this game. Okay, that's great. Add the action element. 
And so and the way it's presented really does feel, in my opinion, from from a programming and from a from a development perspective, like the the action element of the the combat was actually tacked on to the cards, and that's one of the reasons I think it doesn't work. And my biggest problem with it, basically, in a nutshell. The idea that I have to play a card every time I swing my sword as I'm running around on the battlefield is a little silly to begin with, but also incredibly frustrating, especially if, given the way it, it basically discourages you from action, unless you're 100% certain of that. Now, again, this is all bas this is all my opinion you know, about why this is a negative. But I really wanted to explain this, because I know a lot of people have really come after me on this one, because I know several people like uh, the Chain of Memories or the Rechain of Memories uh, combat, but this is this is why I don't. I think it's too much of a hybrid. I think if they were going to do it, they should have either just done Kingdom Hearts combat, which would have worked, in my frank opinion, or they should have just done the cards, which also would have worked, in my opinion, and both would have been fine. Or, let's, 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 let's actually think about this for a moment. One of the things we see in the rest of the Kingdom Hearts games is they don't really mess with the combat so much as they mess with the style and method of leveling. That's one of the biggest things they changed throughout the series from this point on. I have a feeling that that's deliberate, or rather to say that they learned their lesson from Chain of Memories, and they decided to, rather than completely up upset the combat system each time, they upset the uh, the gameplay and the leveling system each time. You know, in, in 2, Birth by Sleep, and 358 all have completely different leveling systems from each other. Why not take that to its furthest extent? You know, if, if you were like, okay, Arshian guy, I want you to work on... on you know, Chain of Memories is uh, combat an element. I'm like, all right, we're, we're going to just basically, you know, refine the Kingdom Hearts, uh, especially since this game was actually made after Kingdom Hearts 2. We're going to transplant the Kingdom Hearts 2 engine over here, which they already did, by the way, just to make that clear. Uh, it's especially noticeable in cutscenes, but they did it for the for the gameplay as well. Okay. And we're going to completely just throw the existing leveling system out because we've got these cards, right? And you already see where I'm going with this. The idea was to, rather than, say, using the cards as combat, you know, I swing my sword and therefore the seven of whatever blade that I happen to have in my deck is played out. Use decks as a way to determine your current level, if you follow me. Um, you know, like for example, I've slaughtered in three sword cards of this type, which incre each increase my stat by this, this, and this, and this one's a seven, an eight, and a nine, and so that increases it by different variables, but a zero can increase it by more or less. You know, you, you, do, you can do all sorts of stuff with this. And they didn't. <laughs> they just said every time you swing a sword, you swing whatever card you happen to have there, or whatever. You get the point. And that's that is in a nutshell my first biggest problem with this game. <sighs> Debatably, the second problem I have with this game is actually worse. And I know it was worse for PAX. I'm not going to describe it in detail like I just did the previous one because I had a lot to say about that one. But I'm just going to say that the grind was the biggest problem with Kingdom Hearts Train Memories. Uh, I just mentioned I cheated, right? Would you, would it surprise you to know that I only cheated through half the game? Or rather, probably more like three-fourths of the game. You'd be like, well, why is that, Arshin Gaia? Well, uh, for fear of spoilers, I can't say everything, but suffice it to say that the first time through the game, uh, through the first story quest, whatever you want to call it, I cheated full out after I started. And for the second one, I didn't at all. And the reason why was I didn't need to. I, I never felt the urge to do so. And while the combat was basically the same, uh, if you'll if you'll remember, they kind of took out the deck building thing. So you just kind of had your deck, and it worked because it was a good deck. But more importantly than that, they took out the grind. Having to run around to get cards that randomly drop in order to be able to throw these cards at the doors in order to unlock the path forward 
got really old the first uh, through the primary chunk of the game. And that's all I'm going to say about that, really, just in a nutshell right there. I think I've already illustrated the difference by saying, you know, the first chunk of the game was too much and the second chunk of the game was fine. It's not like they had to necessarily change the function of how the game worked. All they had to do was tone it down and, and, and refine it a little bit more. But the first part of the game just felt so grindy. So grindy. And I know for a fact PAX as well uh, got stuck on the 99 door one where you had to equal up to 99 and was just like, Ugh. Hang on. I shouldn't say stuck. He wasn't stuck. He just was stuck grinding. Now, there is one other thing I want to talk about with regard to this before I finally move on from the negatives. I know some people uh, have spoken in a negative fashion towards my opinions on grinding, and that's fine. Everyone has their own opinions, and that's fine. Um, but I want to explain two reasons why I dislike grind, because I've never really gone into this in excessive detail. Reason one. I, I have a real life, <laughs> you, you know, and I'm not saying this is an insult, because I am very much a gamer, and I am very much a geek, and I have tons of love and interest and passion for, for games and for Voyager and for, you know, television and arts and music and all this stuff. That's not the point. I'm not saying I have a real life and therefore this stuff is irrelevant. I'm saying I have a real life and therefore I don't have as much time as I used to when I was younger and didn't have, you know, adult responsibilities. You follow? That being said... When you introduce grind to my life, I'm going to try to get through it either as efficiently as possible, or cheat, or give up. Because I don't, I, I have to manage my time. We all have this problem to some extent or another, you know? We all have a limited window of time, our most valuable currency. And when you introduce grind, all you're doing is filling that time with nothing. You follow, and that's what I def and that's why I use the term grind specifically because a grind, in my definition, the way I use the word is filler, which brings me to my second point. It is filler. Imagine any given TV show you're watching where something happens and the plot doesn't advance and the characters aren't advanced and the setting doesn't change and the story doesn't move and nothing cool is happening. So there's no entertainment, there's no development, there's no uh, progression, and there's no alteration. In other words, it's filler. Nothing is happening. It is there to pad out time, to eat up time. That is what grind is in the way I define it, the way I push that word out. Uh, and that's one of the reasons I always kind of just stick on that word when I say grind, you know? <laughs> and that's why I don't like grinding in a nutshell, is because it is literally a waste of time. It is go do this and eat up this time rather than doing anything else, just to pad this out. It's padding. It's filler. It's It's needless and pointless and Damn it, <laughs> you know? I will also say in the interest of, of both seeing both sides of the issue and moderation that some people may say, well, what if you enjoy the grind? If I enjoy the grind, it's not grind, if you follow me. And that really is just it in a nutshell. If I am enjoying myself, it's not grind because it's not wasted time. I am doing something that, though repetitious and though intended to elongate my experience, is nonetheless something I enjoy, and therefore I am actually accomplishing something with it. I am enjoying my life. You understand? So that's that. I just wanted to get that out there. Uh, a weird place to do it, but at the same time, with the severe grind issues I had in the first part of Kingdom Hearts Chain of Memories, this seemed like a good time to discuss that. Now, let's talk about uh, slightly more positive things, shall we? One of the interesting things about franchises in general within the entertainment industry, and this is true across basically all the medium books, movies, television shows, etc., there's an interesting two-step hurdle that everything has to go through in order to actually become successful. Step one, prove that you deserve to continue, basically. 
this is really obvious, but Kingdom Hearts 1 is, is an excellent example of this. Kingdom Hearts 1, as I mentioned before, nobody really knew if it was going to sink or flop. Nobody knew how it was going to do. It exploded. It was incredibly popular. Excellent. Okay, that's the first hurdle. But the problem is, especially from the perspective of the developer, I'm sorry, not the developers, the producers, the executives, the people who push the money and the management behind the games, behind the developers, the question on their mind is what happens with the second one? And again, this is true across all mediums, but especially in games. Is the second game going to be as well done? Is it going to be as popular? Is it going to be, et cetera? I mention this because it is very noteworthy, especially in hindsight, how much effort was put into Chain of Memories. How much effort, how much work, how much time. For a Game Boy Advance game, it was phenomenal. And it is. this is, again, where I'm going to speak specifically about the GBA game. It was incredibly well done. It was incredibly well thought out. It had, it, it really... Uh, caught quite a bit of an audience. Not quite as successful as Kingdom Hearts 1, but it was very much a success. Excuse me, a success nonetheless. Excuse me. And that was an extremely good thing, because that's the second hurdle. If you succeed, that's great. You've earned the right to do a sequel. But the sequel has to succeed in order for you to have a franchise. That's how. That's just basically how it works. There are, of course, exceptions, but that's the general rule. If Chain of Memories had not done well and sold well, we would not have had Kingdom Hearts 2. We might have had Kingdom Hearts 2. That might have been the, the final spat. Uh, to give this a relation for anybody who doesn't fully get what I'm talking about, Star Trek The Motion Picture was basically a financial flop. And this is actually kind of a weird one, because the, the pattern doesn't quite fit here, uh, because Star Trek IV was actually the big financial success of the series. But basically, the idea was Star Trek the motion picture was the, was the first attempt. Now, in Star Trek's case, the first attempt kind of failed from a from a perspective. I'm not speaking ill of motion picture. Let's not, let's not go into that, okay? Speaking purely in the terms of the numbers and the finances, Star Trek the motion picture was basically a failure. Now, they don't stop there. Usually what a studio will do will try to wring out whatever they can out of the franchise and then let it die. That's what Star Trek II was intended to be. I'm not going to get into this now because there's a whole lot of variables there, but suffice it to say Star Trek II got incredibly lucky. They got incredibly uh, well-skilled, detailed actors, directors, writing, producing, music. It basically all came together, and that's why Star Trek II was so good. But the important part was Star Trek II was effectively the, the, the first of the franchise, if you follow what I mean here, in, in order to follow this thing. Star Trek II was a success. That proved they had the right to a sequel. Okay. Star Trek Three. not nearly as much of a success. Um, no, Again, we're not talking about pennies or anything like that. This is just a financial thing. Not nearly as much of a success. So Star Trek Three was the start of the downward spiral, just a little bit, right? Now, that's interesting in its own right, because this is the point I'm trying to get across here. If Chain of Memories had not succeeded, Kingdom Hearts 2 still would have made, been made, just like Star Trek 4 was still made. And it is possible the franchise would have kept going, just like Star Trek's franchise would have kept going, because Star Trek 4, a.k.a. the third one in this overall sequence, is the one that actually was the big success story, the one that really uh, just exploded financially and, and made tons and tons of money and helped get a certain thing uh, you might have heard of called The Next Generation made. So... You know, that's that's basically what happens in entertainment in general. You know, you have to succeed at first, to some extent or another, and if you succeed, at, at the, from the point of that success, you get one more shot, basically, in order to really prove it, and then usually you'll get one last shot, because they're going to try to wring it out of it. And any of these three, at least one of these needs to be a major success. 
the point I'm trying to get to here, forgive me for segueing like that, is that Kingdom Hearts got extremely fortunate. The reason Kingdom Hearts has exploded so much, the reason it is so very popular uh, across most of the, the world, I might add, is because one, two, and three, that is to say one Kingdom Hearts uh, Chain of Memories and two, all were successes. Especially two, which is uh, to date, I believe, still the uh, best selling of all the Kingdom Hearts. And I, I'm not 100% sure on that, don't quote me on that. And so that's one of the reasons that the franchise went... And you may be asking, why am I bringing this up? Uh, other than to just talk about the series. The reason I'm bringing this up is because this is why, because it has been such a success, this is why they have gotten away with as much as they have with Kingdom Hearts. Uh, in just about every facet. First of all, the game, has, the, the developers for the Kingdom Hearts series have had a huge amount of leeway and uh, freedom in making their games, which is great, especially the direction Square Enix has been going uh, for the last decade or so. So that's that was one thing they got away with. Number two, because they had the help and backing of Disney, they pretty much innately had a larger budget than they already would have. I mentioned this back in Kingdom Hearts 1. And the fact that there was a success on top of having Disney there meant that they were just free to do whatever for all intents and purposes. And, there, and a, quite a bit of money has been flung at the series to produce it. But all of these are positives. I am actually bringing this up for a, ne a negative. Let's, let's use this finger. There we go. Okay. Whoops, that's the wrong finger again. There we go, I did it! Here, this finger, see? It, never mind. <laughs> the biggest problem with the Kingdom Hearts series I already mentioned, and that's that it's across multiple platforms. And if the series was not as successful as it was, they could not have gotten away with that. The reason they have gotten away with that is it is so successful that the producers think, admittedly correctly, that most people will go ahead and procure those consoles, those handhelds, basically, uh, those multiple handhelds, simply in order to continue playing the series. We've got PS2, briefly GBA, and then PS2. Uh, PS2 again, so okay, we're okay so far. DS, yeah, okay. PSP, yeah. 3DS, oh, and actually a uh, phone, and then DS, and then PSP. And now we're going to have PS4. Or possibly three. There's there's still some if and on there, but it's probably going to be in the PS4 given its current development cycle. And you see the problem that arises here. It is almost ironic that the series has done so well that it is unfortunate, because we then suffer as a result. Because now, if we want to enjoy the game as a series as a whole, we get to pick up. We either get to YouTube the games we don't want to play, or we pick up an extra console to play it. I have to admit, uh. I did not own a PSP until Birth by Sleep was announced. Do keep in mind I did not buy a PSP for Birth by Sleep. Anybody who knows me knows that I pick up a ga uh, any given console, handheld or otherwise, based on its game library. But Birth by Sleep was the tipping point. I There were already games out, uh, Crisis Core, um, the Cydia was coming out, uh, the the GTAs, the Liberty, uh, the Stories, Liberty Story, and uh, Vice City Stories. Uh, the God of War is already out. You know, there were several games already out on the PSP that I was eyeballing, but it wasn't until Birth by Sleep came out that I fi that was finally tipping point. That was finally what pushed me over and says, okay, fine, I'll buy a PSP. And that's kind of my point in a nutshell. It is unfortunate how successful it has been, given how much we have to invest if we want to enjoy this series. And this is kind of the beginning of that. Let's go ahead and stop talking about things like that. Uh, I think I'm basically at the point now where I have to cut off the spoiler arc, so let's go ahead and make a note here. 3150, okay. So, 
as of this moment, here's your big warning. I am not going to be talking about spoilers without regard, without consequence. It was his sled. I'm just saying. It was his sled. You spent forever figuring out nothing. No, seriously, though. Uh, I, I don't think there's many big things I'm going to spoil deliberately or intentionally, but what I am going to do is talk without regard to spoilers from now on. Okay? You've been warned. Okay, so... Uh, one of the things that I think succeeded best about Kingdom Hearts Chain of Memories deserves a great deal of talk, uh, which is why I'm going to put it off. <laughs> um, sorry, my notes are actually kind of out of order. I just uh, was thinking about this today while I was doing dishes, and I was like, you know, I should reorganize this. So let's go ahead and talk about the Disney scenes in Kingdom Hearts 1. Or, I'm sorry, in Kingdom Hearts Recom. If you remember, one of the things I mentioned back in Kingdom Hearts 1 was several of the Disney worlds basically felt like filler. They felt like they were tacked on, and they didn't actually advance the story of the game series as a whole. Kingdom Hearts was not affected by Tarzan's world, you know, the deep jungle. That being... Uh, now, okay, that being said, those worlds were obviously affected by the story. You know, the Heartless existing and being drawn to Clayton, to use the specific example of the deep jungle. But my point is, it didn't go the other way. The world didn't affect the story. The story affected the world. And in my opinion, uh, speaking as a writer, that was poorly done. Uh, that was what I would call a wasted opportunity. It's not necessarily a bad thing so much as it is not a good thing. You could have done more with that. As weird as this is going to sound, Chain of Memories much succeeded much better at this. Even though every Disney setting you go through is a rehash, it because it is literally you reliving, in, in lower terms, it is literally you reliving the memories of those worlds that you've been through. But each one uh, was A, relatively brief, so that kind of worked, and B, specifically related to the overall theme of the game and the setting and the and advancement of the story, that of memory. I'll be talking about that in my giant chunk, which will wait uh, pretty much towards the end of this. So, in my opinion, to summarize, the Disney scenes worked a lot better in Recom, and I do mean specifically in Recom, not Com, uh, than they did in Kingdom Hearts 1. That is also uh, relevant because of the next point, which is the fact that the writing was obviously better in Recom than it was in Kingdom Hearts 1. That is easy to explain, though. Uh, after Kingdom Hearts 2, the writers really found their bearing. Uh, actually, I would say during Kingdom Hearts 2, the writers really found their bearing. And that's not really surprising. Any given uh, work you do, if you if you work on it for a while, uh, speaking myself as well as a writer, you know, you work on a particular story or a setting or whatever for a while, after a while you look back at the original stuff and it's like, wow, because you, you've evolved, you've changed, you've grown, you've gotten to know the characters, you've gotten to know the setting. You have that tone and that feeling uh, set down. You know what I mean? I'm sure everyone uh, understands what I'm going with this, who's, who's ever tried to write or design anything. So... It reaches the point where you know what you're doing better. You have become more experienced. You have leveled up in your writing capacity. And this has been very true throughout the whole Kingdom Hearts series, all the way up to 3D, which has, in my opinion, the best writing of the series. It's one of the reasons I like 3D so much. And Birth by Sleep had excellent writing, and so forth and so on. But my point in bringing this up is Recom came out after 2. Recom, specifically, came out after 2. And it was clear that they had really nailed down uh, a lot of, of that skill and that experience when Recom came out, because the writing was of such noticeably, obviously higher quality. When I was replaying the Kingdom Hearts series for these reviews, uh, I, I really did. I, I went from 1 to Recom to 2 to 358. Uh, I actually paused then because I started getting sick. <laughs> uh, so I'm actually in the middle of Birth by Sleep now. But the point being... Uh, once uh, you hit 
when you go straight from one to recom, the jump in overall quality is is astonishing. The jump in directing quality, the the jump in the graphics, the usage of the graphics engine, the jump in the and and you know the cutscene quality, the jump in the writing, every, and the jump in the voice acting too. The everything was of such noticeably better quality, and that's probably one of the single biggest reasons why I like Recom. I know, for the story, right? But in all seriousness, even ignoring the fact that the story was good to begin with, because I played Calm, the re-release of it, the, the recom of it, was so well done, it was so well presented that I enjoyed it that much the more. Ignoring the extra stuff and all the other little subtleties and nuances they threw in, which I'll mention in a little bit here. So, I think that has partially to do with why the, the Disney scenes worked so much better, why they were so much more thematically involved with the thing, and why so many of the cutscenes worked as well. Speaking of which, let's, let's mention something else here that's really cool about Recom. Now granted, I was cheating uh, for, through the Sora's story. By the way, I, I can finally say that Sora's story is where I cheated, Riku's story is where I didn't. Didn't have to, basically. But throughout all of Sora's story, I could best describe it as, you know, Gameplay, 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 cutscene, gameplay, 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 cutscene. Now, I ended up blowing through the game in, like, uh, 11 hours, because, again, cheating. But the thing I was very much struck by was how much content there was there in terms of storyline, in terms of plot, in terms of development. There were lots of cutscenes. There was lots of character development. There was lots of story development. I'll, again, I'll, I'll, this, this is a big piece. I'm still building up to it. I'll get there, but I just wanted to mention that because there was quite a bit of filling uh, through in this. Not filler filling instead of fluff instead of you know cream on the top of the cake we had lots of cake and cream throughout recom but again i'll get to that i'll get to that more later i'll get to that more later um one other thing of interest about recom is this is our true first real look at the nobodies yes we did see them back in kingdom hearts one and by them i mean him I'm not going to say his name yet but we did see one nobody back in kingdom hearts one we didn't know what a nobody was in fact we don't know what a nobody is still I am using that term because most people know what a nobody is at this point and knows what the term Organization 13 means, but neither of these things are really mentioned within Recom. And that was another thing in its favor. It introduced something completely new and then didn't explain them at all. It left everything up to the just theorizing and speculation. Speaking as someone who was a huge uh, frequenter of Kingdom Hearts uh, theory crafting and speculation threads at the time, we were exploding over this over overcome when it first came out we had so many theories and so many ideas of who was what and why and where and everything and what did the black cloak cloak symbolize and what was the significance of this and that and who was who was d's and just all this stuff tons and tons and tons of speculation and that's a good thing that's exactly what you should do especially with a sequel uh when you're trying to set up a long-term franchise because the real point i'm trying to make here with this thing is that while Kingdom Hearts 1 was obviously the first game, as I mentioned before, Recom was the first part of the series. This is when they really had figured out everything, and now they were doing it as a series. In other words, the first real building block of all of the plot threads and all the story of Kingdom Hearts as a series was actually laid in Recom. This or or Com, but you get the point. This was when the series actually started. Uh, from a from a creation perspective, from a writing or a creative perspective, everything in Kingdom Hearts One was accounted for, but everything started in Recom. You follow me? And that's kind of what I'm uh, leading to here. Not the big point, still getting there, but Recom had an extremely how do I put this? <sighs> I 
I, I guess I'm just going to kind of merge my next three points into one. Forgive me. Uh, but I'm going to be talking for a little bit here. I guess I already have, but I need some water. My goodness. Ah, they don't have Canada Dry here. I'm very sad. So I will no longer be able to drink that. I'm getting local brand sparkling water instead. Which is good. Don't don't mistake me. I'm just sad. We'll never have Canada Dry again. No, okay. The focus of Recom's plot is incredibly tight. No scene is unnecessary. No scene is superfluous. Every single cutscene and tidbit of dialogue advances the specific story, the character development, or the setting. Everything is 100% in Recom as far as the, the development of the plot goes, and that's one of the reasons I like it so much is because of how tightly focused its story is and how well presented it is. There are a surprisingly large amount of nuances and subtleties within Recom. Why is the, why is the camera doing the focus thing? Stop doing that. Stop doing that. You're in focus. Okay. There's a surprising amount of subtlety and nuance uh, within Recom, and I'll talk about a few in specific, but probably my favorite is this... Uh, well, let's just go ahead and talk about Axel. I know you were all waiting for me to talk about Axel since he is arguably the most popular character in the entire franchise. I'm not going to talk a lot about him right now, but I am going to say a couple of things. Number one, playing Recom after having seen 2 makes a lot more sense, doesn't it? Oh, I'm sorry, 2 and 358. It makes a lot more sense, doesn't it? They really, like I said, they really had that planned out and they knew where their character was going. And it really just highlights the differences. And speaking of which, two, even not knowing the other two games where Axel plays a major three games where Axel plays a major role, it is worth noting that Axel receives, by and large, the most amount of character development within Recom. He does actually change and grow throughout the course of the story in a violently short period of time, and that's actually a plot point by itself. Uh, as to make the point here, not many people are aware of this, but Kingdom Hearts One occurs over an unknown period of time that is known to be at least several months. Then Recom happens literally immediately after and takes place over the course of a couple of days. Just like that, right? And then there's a year, which we won't talk about right now. A little less than a year, actually. And so forth and so on. But my point is, all of the events of Recom, you remember I was talking about that tight focus? All of that happens over the course of just a couple of days here. And that's part of why it's so focused. But the other interesting thing about that is if you look at the series franchise as a whole, and I'm not going to say any spoilers here, but if you look at Kingdom Hearts, as I said, not only did everything really start here, but from an in-character and in-lore perspective, Chain of Memories is when the catalyst happened. No, no Mass Effect 3 uh, <laughs> uh, relation intended. My, you know, the spark. The, 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 everything was laid out. The dominoes were in place. Kingdom Chain of Memories was when those dominoes were knocked over. Chain of Memories is when everything started. Literally, we are still feeling the effects uh, in, in the series as of now, uh, as of approaching three from Chain of Memories. We are still seeing the impact of the events that happened over the course of those couple of days. And that's kind of my point. There is an, uh, there is an impact, a gravitas, that is added to the storyline because of how much we know was impacted by it over the course of such a small period of time. And there's also a wonderful pace and tempo to the story that is very, kong, 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 kong. you know, you're just pushing through this. As, you know, you're not even trying to rush, but it is going through so quickly because things are happening so quickly in the game. And it emphasizes the impact and relevance of those events much, very powerfully. And I love that. Um, but getting back to Axel for a moment, 
Axel himself clearly shows that he is more than he meets the eye virtually immediately. And I'm not even just talking about the obvious things like him betraying Marlugia or Marlu... I've forgotten how to pronounce it. It's something weird. I remember that. Marlugia, I think? I don't remember off the top of my head. But, you know, even ignoring that, even, uh, for example, his assassination of... Uh... I wanted to call him Lokseb for a second, but that's actually one of my characters. Um... Oh my god, I can't think of his name. Z Elon. I, I can't think of his name. Oh my gosh. Hang on. This is unacceptable. <laughs> Give me a moment. I have this problem with Larxene, too. I have a tendency to call her uh, Zaydenra. Because I'm weird. What is his damn name? Vexen. That's his name. Okay. <clears throat> Even Axel's assassination of Vexen was there was more to it than we than, than obviously uh, than we saw. But my point is, even as we saw it, you could tell that there was more going on there. There were hints, there were subtleties. A lot of the scenes we see with Axel are scenes where Axel is by himself or by, around someone he does not have to deceive or lie to, and we see through his expression that there's more going on up here than we're being led to believe. In other words, I, in my opinion, one of the reasons Axel took off as such a popular character was because he was such a, a, a well-written, well-fleshed-out character. There was more to him than so many of the other nobodies. Uh, I could point to, for example, Larxene, who ha every nobody has at least some subtlety to them, but ultimately you could summarize virtually every other one of them by a few bullet points. You know, Larxene is sadistic and uh, cruel, for example, and uh, uh, Vexen is studious, scientific, and calculating cold. Uh, you know, stuff like that, right? Axel is much harder to summarize because there's so much more to him. And again, not to spoil anything, but I don't think it's... The fact that I've already... Most people know that Axel is in other games other than Recom. But the interesting thing is Axel is not just a major character from a gameplay perspective, uh, or that is to say from a game perspective, but he is one of the most major characters in the plotline. I don't actually have a proper term for this. It's a concept I've seen before, especially in games, where a character that is not a main character and also not a main antagonist is nevertheless a huge and important driving force behind the overall story. Uh, a major neutral character, maybe? A major NPC? Whatever you want to call it, Axel is without question that one of those. He is a huge driving force behind the series and the setting, and very important to the progression of how the, the franchise has gone on. And I think one of the biggest reasons why he was so fleshed out is because he was intended to be used as a major character very early on. And if you're going to do that, you don't write someone flat, you know? You, if, you're, if you're doing it right anyways, you think it out, you say, okay, we need to add depth to this character. But more importantly, you don't start with the character having depth. And this becomes more obvious with regards to 358, not to spoil anything, but in 358 we see Axel a little bit before Recom, and then we see him after, and the difference is stunning. That's all I'm going to say about that right now. But my point is, those several days during Recom, we get to see, in action, as it's happening, Axel's development, character growth, and certain other things that are happening, which I'm not going to talk about now. Uh, one of the other things that this uh, particular game really starts pushing, I mentioned this before both in the series and in the Kingdom Hearts 1, so Kingdom Hearts 1 video, so I'm only just mentioning it in brief, but Recom, again, 
where the franchise really starts, is the beginning, the true beginning of the Dark is Not Evil storyline. Yes, I know it was hinted at before, but this is where it really took hold. Riku's overall story and his progression and his fighting the darkness and his using the darkness and his interaction with Deez or Diz, I've actually heard it pronounced both in the game, so shrug, whatever, I call him Deez. Darkness in Zero, if you're wondering. Um... All of all of his interactions clearly show where his character arc is going. An arc that has only recently finished, I might add. Uh, the idea, the design that Dark is not evil. That there is some sense to that. That uh, I don't know how to better explain that. I'm just going to cut it off there. I've already really talk, covered this topic in detail, detail. But I want to mention something that does amuse me greatly. We know for a fact, as of this point in the game, this is nothing you know, cutting ahead or anything. We know that Mickey spent a long period of time within the realm of darkness, uh, searching for the the Kingdom Hearts D, uh, or the Kingdom Blade D, excuse me, the Kingdom Key D, the the darkness version of the Keyblade. I've already mentioned my theories regarding that, but ignore the theories for a moment. Fling those out the window, into a ravine. the The point is, Mickey spent a huge amount of point in time in the realm of darkness and was effectively unaffected by it. That's because he's Mickey. He's the closest thing to an avatar of light we have in the setting. I've mentioned this before as well. Why do I bring this up? Because the two people who form a very close friendship are not Mickey and Sora, as you might expect, given the setting and the circumstance and the fact that Sora's the main protagonist. But it is Mickey and Riku who actually form the lasting friendship that lasts to this day, I might add. The two of them met, basically, in Recom. I mean, yes, I know they met just before that, but for all intents and purposes, this is when their friendship really started to grow. And the two of them helped each other out and worked with each other and really started working towards uh, all the ends that they would be working towards over the course of, you know, the next year leading up to Kingdom Hearts 2. But my point is I find it fascinating that it is Mickey and Riku who end up being friends. Riku, who is serious and dark, as we mentioned before, and much more severe in his overall temperament and personality, becomes friends with Mickey. Good friends with Mickey, by the way. Both direction friendship. Uh... Mickey, who is, as I said, the avatar of light, who is lighthearted and bouncy and thinks of things cheerfully. But both of them show sides of each other, which is one of the reasons I like it best. We don't really see as much of this in Recom, but I just felt like mentioning it here because I felt this is the most appropriate place to do so. Mickey, despite his overall temperament and being Mickey, nevertheless shows that he has a serious side, that he knows how to take things seriously, that he understands the gravity of events as they are happening. He, he, you know, Too often in fiction you'll have someone who is lighthearted, and their reaction to something horrible happening will be to react lightheartedly towards it. Mickey does not do that. Mickey will approach it seriously. M Mickey will say, that has weight, that has effect, that has impact and, and relevance, and therefore I will treat it accordingly. By contrast, Riku, despite his overall serious temperament, his, uh, as I like to put it, trying to be older than he is personality, because I think that's what it really comes down to for Riku. He's trying to be an adult, despite still being uh, young. Riku, nevertheless, has quite a bit of a silly and fun side. He doesn't show it that often, but every time he does, he does actually interact in such a way like that. And, and while he tends to get angsty from time to time, it is incredibly easy to break him out of it, and he'll show that lighthearted side that he actually has. If you get where I'm going with this, you, you follow? It's an interesting pairing, and it works surprisingly well, and I just felt like mentioning that here. Because uh, real life tends to work that way too, doesn't it? Uh, okay, let's look at my notes here really quick. And take a drink. Oh my gosh, my throat. I'm not used to doing this. <laughs> mm -hmm. 
Uh, I think we're down to the big thing now. So let's talk about the big thing. In real life, um, there's there's effectively, debatably, no such thing as an absolute. And what does that mean, Archie and Gaia? It means we don't know anything. It means nothing we know can be proven. And theoretically speaking, it is relatively easy to come up with a circumstance where everything we know can be disproven. No absolutes, right? You following me on that? Why do I bring this up? There is a concept in TV tropes known as Word of God. Um, it is referred to when, in a fictional setting, the developers of that fictional setting have said, this is this. In other words, what we have in fiction is something we don't have re in real life. Obviously, that's true for a lot of things, but my point is, it is possible to have an absolute in fiction. It is possible for me, as the writer of, of you know, whatever, uh, of the primes, to say, this is this. I know this because I designed and created this setting from, from the ground up, and therefore that is an absolute. Why do I bring that up? Because a lot of things fiction tends to do, and this is true for everything, uh... Hell, Star Trek does this a lot, too, is it'll look at something that is a real-life allegory, and then most often it will say, this is the answer in this particular setting. You know, you know, it will raise a question, but the answer will be blah. Now, usually that answer is, of course, affected by the opinions of the writer. I mean, we all do that, I do that. But the point is, within the confines of that setting, there is an answer, whereas in real life there is not. Where am I going with all this? The theme, without question or hesitation about Chain of Memories, is, surprise, memories. But it, it's more complicated than that. Not just memories themselves, but the idea that... The, the question that is raised by Recom, and is answered within Recom, and to an extent within Kingdom Hearts 2, is, are we made up of just our memories? If you change our memories, do we change as a person? Or... Are we who we are regardless of our memories? Now, this is a real-life question. This is something that has been debated by philosophers and, and bi biologists and all sorts of people in real life for centuries. What makes us us? You know? So, that was my reason for bringing up that whole uh, non-absolute thing. Within Kingdom Hearts, we do have an absolute answer. The absolute answer is that we are more than just our memories. And we see this on several occasions, rather well exp uh, explained in my opinion. Let me, let me give you a specific example I really wanted to pull up, because I know someone who mentioned that they felt this scene was unnecessary, and after careful thought I actually disagreed with that opinion. There's a scene in Recom where Sora basically tells Donald and Sora to, or <laughs> Donald and Goofy to go away, you know, screw off, I got things to do. He's really rude about it too, he is a complete jerk about it, okay? So he tells them to go away, and they go away, but then they come back to help him out. Now, if you're paying attention from a thematic, stylistic point of a writer, that's basically copy-paste from what happened in Kingdom Hearts 1 at the Hollow Bastion. Now, yes, I know, the, the specific details were different, but again, thematically speaking, stylistically speaking, as a writer, the impact of the two scenes is the same. Now, I mentioned before that one of the reasons I like that scene so much is it really showed the friendship that had already really grown between Sora, Donald, and Goofy. And that is one of the driving points of much of the entire series, for that matter. But the reason I feel it was not needless, not excess, not unnecessary within Chain of Memories 
especially Recom, because the voice acting really gets the point across, is it shows that exact point I just mentioned. Even though their memories have been jumbled, even though they have been manipulated and deceived literally throughout the entire game, even though Sora is, is basically being pulled along like a puppet on a string, they remain friends. They remain loyal to each other. And so and Donald and Goofy do decide, despite everything, to go ahead and be there for them. And that is the actual point of this particular scene. Not that they're friends, because we already knew that. We knew that back in Kingdom Hearts 1. But that they are more than their memories. They are more than the experiences that make up themselves. Obviously, those do affect them. And we see that throughout Chain of Memories explicitly. We see how much the memory tampering does alter with them and, and change how they react. But they are still who they are at their core regardless. Now, in Kingdom Hearts terms, you could say that is their heart, for example. Their heart does not change. But the point behind that remains the same. It's probably one of the best ways to get across that point, and in my opinion, is actually surprisingly subtle in its execution. I actually don't know anybody else who's ever mentioned this before. Uh, forgive me if this sounds incredibly obvious or blatant to you. Um... But another good example of this uh, is actually in 2. Actually, I'm not going to go into that. I'm not going to go into that. Uh, let's not talk about 2 here. But the overall point is King Chain of Memories throughout its entire run really, really defines the, forgive me, the chains of memories. Uh, that's another thing that comes up that, I, that I'm going to segue into in just a second here. It really makes you th it's it's probably the most cerebral of the kingdom hearts games in my opinion because it really shows how easy it is to change individuals on the surface look what happened to uh repliku for example and how fiercely he reacted because his memories were altered because of how his memories were changed and yet despite that fact again the argument could be made rather strongly that his heart even though he didn't actually have one debatable was nevertheless the same. His core, who he was, what he was, uh, nevertheless remained the same despite everything because of the way he acts both before and after his transformation, which we only see in Riku's story and towards the end of Sora's story, respectively. Very well done, all things considered, and again, gets across that point that who you are may be altered and changed to some extent or another in the way you present yourself based on your memories and your experiences, but you're still you. You're probably wondering why I haven't mentioned this yet. I'm still... I've basically been building up to this this entire time. Forgive me. But there's one last thing I want to talk about with regards to Recom. I cannot talk about this character in detail yet. And that character is Namine. A character whose name I didn't know how to pronounce until Kingdom Hearts 2 came out. <laughs> Namine? Namine? Anyways. Namine is a very interesting character. Now, again, I'm not going to talk about her in total here. I'm actually going to talk about her uh, in total in Kingdom Hearts 2. So forgive me for basically just kind of putting that off. But the reason why is very simple. As I mentioned, Recom, one of the things it does best is it, is it adds all sorts of new information without explaining any of it. If you think about it, within Recom, we don't know anything about Namine. We know that she can alter the memories of people. And actually, even that is actually not completely true, as we find out later. But within the confines of Recom, she can edit memories, and that's it. That's what we know. That's it. That's all. 
But I am going to talk about one thing that we do learn about her later, because I want people to understand this. I've heard so many people who are fans of Kingdom Hearts who blast the heck out of Nominee. I want you to close your eyes, if you will. You probably won't. <laughs> but I'm going to. I'm going to go ahead and close my eyes. Because I want to get this point across, okay? I want you to picture suddenly coming into being alone. I want you to picture being in an alien place that is morphic by its design, that you have no idea where you are, who you are, what you are, or why you are there. You are in this strange, empty, desolate place that has nothing to do with anything that you have ever known or ever will know, and you are lost and alone. I want you to be picture, picture being in this sterilized, white place where everything is this utter, unchanging tone and shade of white. And there is nothing there, no matter how many rooms you go through, other than this emptiness, and you are lost. I want you to picture being completely, utterly alone. Now I want you to picture that someone stronger than you, larger than you, more powerful than you, more experienced from you, shows up and basically tells you you are going to do what they tell you to do. What would you do? I feel like Naminé deserves a lot more credit than she gets because she is the beginning of the true tragedies uh, that will mark much of the Kingdom Hearts series. Yes, I know, ultimately, they actually began birth by sleep. That's not what I mean. With regards to play order, this is the first we begin to see of how tragic this setting really is. This is a young girl who has been pained, lost, alone, suffered grief and sorrow, and she has been utilized as little more than a tool by those more powerful than her. And don't read into this, by the way. That's completely... Just don't, okay? Marluxia... I have the hell you say his name. Marluxia is how I used to say his name, but I know that's wrong. Um, saw in her a tool he could use in order to gain a degree of power over the organization. And those above him saw her as a tool to be used in order to help having a backup plan in place in order for their particular plans. Every single individual she interacted with did not see her as a person until Sora and later Riku, the real Riku, not Repliku. It is of no surprise to me whatsoever that Naminé acted in the way she did and did the things she did, despite them being horrible, despite them being wrong. I have a great deal of sympathy and empathy for that character, given what she had to go through. It is also, therefore, no surprise that after having gone through such horribleness, the stark contrast of the way both Sora and Riku treated her would completely shock her out of that behavior. There is a reason that she did such a rather quick turnaround. Remember, this game occurs over the course of several days. It is of no surprise to me that she would turn around and have a, a, a change of heart and a change of mindset so quickly, given the severity of the contrast of how she is treated by one group and then the other. And it is no surprise to me that she remained loyal to Riku for so long after this point in time and worked with him for so long. It is of no surprise to me that she ended up not really being loyal to or working with Dee's, given how he treated her in relation to how Marluxia treated her. I'm, not, I'm going to talk about that more with, when we get to Kingdom Hearts 2. But it is interesting to note, when you think about it, the parallels between Dee's and Marluxia when it comes to how they treated Naminé and how they reacted to her as a person or lack thereof. I just wanted to end on that note. <laughs> Forgive me. But 
Uh, one final thing about Kingdom Hearts Recom. Hang on just a second. I have been I have been quoted as saying uh, rather correctly on several occasions that it is my belief that this game should be watched rather than played. That being said, if you have any true interest in it or th or feel like the card gameplay is is your thing or your style, by all means go for it. But do take this recommendation I'm about to give seriously. If you have any interest in the Kingdom Hearts series at all whatsoever, please, even if you never played this game or have no interest in playing this game, watch it. Watch the cutscenes. Watch the watch the 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 the, uh, the story YouTube playlist. You know, there's several out there. This game set up everything in the Kingdom Hearts series that is to come. And again, we are still not fully realizing the full impacts and events that this one game in these several days happened. This is literally the moment, this, this is the moment where everything changes. This is the first domino falling. And that's one of the things I like most about Recom, and why I strongly recommend you look into it if you have any interest whatsoever. So, I'm going to go ahead and rest my throat for a bit, and uh, hopefully I will talk to you guys soon. Cool.